I think it might've been the first instance besides movies that I got addicted to like Jaws or Superman that got me addicted to movies or the quality of movie making itself. Field of Dreams was different because it, uh, it made me different. Like I was different at the other side of it. Robert Yannis Jr., episode one. I am the aforementioned Robert Yannis Jr. Uh, and in case you didn't realize the name change and the artwork change in the feed, this is the first episode, as I just said, of the rebranded, what used to be the Crooked Table podcast, now Close Watch with me, Robert Yannis Jr. Similar concept, we're going to have a guest come in. We're going to talk about a movie that's that's uh, important to them or personal to them or that they choose to, to discuss. We're going to talk about the movie, how it's aged, how well it, what it reflects about them, what it says in general, why they connect to it, and kind of just get to know the person through the movie that they love. So without further ado, you can find more episodes of this show or the Crooked Table podcast back, backlog on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. On this, the first episode of this brand new uh, name, newly named, newly kind of revamped version of the show, we have Darren Lundberg discussing 1989's Field of Dreams, which is a, a first time watch for me, spoiler for the episode, so we'll get into exactly why that resonates with him. Of course, Field of Dreams has this long reputation of sort of being a tearjerker designed for predominantly male audience. Let's talk about that. Let's get going and find out more about Field of Dreams. If you build it, he will come. Welcome to Close Watch with Robert Yanis Jr. I am the aforementioned Robert Yanis Jr. And this is the first episode of the show where we get to know our guests through the movies they love. And I am honored to welcome to the show, Darren Lundberg. Welcome to this is the first uh, recording and first episode being posted for this refreshed version of the Crooked Table podcast known as Close Watch. So uh, how are you doing, Darren? I'm, I'm doing good, Rob. Thanks. I, it's an honor. I didn't realize this was the first actual incarnation of your the new branding. So that's, that's yeah. I, feel, I feel special. Yeah, I, I felt like the need to shout that out up top because we kind of get the gears turning again in this new version of the previous show. But before we get into the, the movie we're going to discuss and your history with it and all of that, tell people a little bit about who you are, what you're all about. Okay, well, again, my name is Darren Lundberg. I'm just the normal Utah kid, I guess you could call me, just trying to grow up, you know, grew up an only child. My mom, my dad passed away when I was two, and my mom got remarried when I was 13. So obviously the movie was, I'm kind of primed, the movie we're going to talk about was kind of primed for it affecting me in a certain way. But again, we've got our own, my friend and I, best friend, Johnny uh, Craddock, we have our own podcast, Nostalgia Cast where we, and you and I were talking before we, were, we started here, but talking about movies that when we grew up with, Johnny and I kind of had the idea, you know, especially when the, the Ghostbusters remake, the Lady Ghostbusters, as we call it, came out. And then there was a, just a backlash about that. And it's just, I think the nostalgia got to be a little bit too much, like our attachment to these IPs or these 
properties that we grew up with as children. And so if, if we're too attached to those where it comes to threatening actors that are taking part in these remakes that we have no control over, it's all studios, right? They, they right. kind of control that. If, if you get to a point where you feel like you have to get on social media and you have to threaten these people or threaten their lives or, or tell them they have no business like messing with your culture, I think that kind of gets dangerous. And that's what we kind of want to talk about. It's we, you don't want to get too attached to movies because you want to be honest with them, but you also, you want to make sure that that nostalgia how do I put that? It it works for you instead of against you. You don't want to be blind to issues, especially movies, since we cover a lot of movies in the 80s where there are a lot of um, problems with the content yeah. and with the way people are treated and with the language. We've, we've got to take that into context, but you've also got to take into context how you feel about these movies. And so we, we try to take movies that meant something to us, but not movies like you know, Star Wars or that everybody has an opinion on just something that we were attached to as children. And then we pick them up and just, Oh, this is great. Like you, we always say, we find it in the $5 bin at Walmart. You're like, I haven't seen this in 20 years. Let's pop it and see how it is. And then it's either a reaction of, Oh boy, like, what did I see in this? Or this, <laughs> this is a lot better than, than I remember. And so we, we just try to have good quality, non-argumentative conversations about that because I don't, and, you know, you, you and I, we've conversed on Twitter and I feel like we've got a good rapport going. Like we don't, I, I, I don't think you have the opinion of you want to start arguments either. You don't want to get bitter with people and it just, it doesn't lead anywhere productive. And so that's, that's kind of what we're about trying to take these movies and being honest with them, but appreciative of them as well. Yeah, no, totally. And we mentioned a minute ago about how this is the first episode of this new show. And when I refocused the Crooked Table podcast prior to this and kind of leaned more towards bringing guests on every episode and stuff, the first movie we discussed there was Ace Ventura Pet Detective, which <laughs> I just did a, this kind of the sister show to Close Watch is, is Franchise Detours. People can find mm -hmm. that, you know, in their podcatcher of choice. And because it was kind of a, a new era of me podcasting, I was like, well, I feel like I should go back to Ace Ventura and talk about the franchise. And so twice now I've gone on mic and had to be like, this movie has so many issues and it's so homophobic, transphobic, et cetera, oh, yeah. et cetera. But I still, I still love it because I was 11 when it came out and Jim Carrey means something, means very, it's very important to me and my appreciation of comedy and all that other stuff. It was like, like exactly what you were saying. It's, it's trying to take what it means to you versus its actual quality and kind of keep those as two separate metrics, essentially. Yeah. And then just to show you, I'm not above that kind of thing. I did, there was, we were in a dollar sheet for whatever reason. They had Ace Ventura and Ace Ventura When Nature Calls as part of a two pack yeah. for a dollar. And so I was like, yeah, a dollar. So I snatched that up. So I haven't, I've got, a, I've got copies. I just haven't been able to go back and, and watch Ace Ventura. But yeah, Ace Ventura is one I remember seeing in a theater. So I'm right there with you as far as the yeah. Jim Carrey assance, I guess you could call exactly, it. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so this episode, we're going to be talking about a, a movie that's obviously very close to Darren's heart because I, I know he has a poster of it in his room while he's recording this. <laughs> and it's also your your Twitter your Twitter icon, your, your avatar on Twitter as well. So we're going to be talking about 1989's Field of Dreams. I have just created something totally illogical. That's what I like about it. If you build it, he will come. If 
didn't say. I hate it when that happens. Me too. Who's your invoices? Ray is. <laughs> I think I know what if you build it, he will come means. Ooh, why do I not think this is such a good thing? Daddy, there's a man up there on your lawn. Darren, it's a very important movie to you. Do you want to tell us why you wanted to talk about Field of Dreams starring Kevin Costner and kind of a little bit of your first exposure to the movie? Yeah, absolutely. Like I mentioned before, uh, growing up just with a you know a mom on our on our own. Again, I'm an only child, uh, single parent. My mom trying to work for us, and I mention this on our podcast all the time. She would just leave me with movies. Movies were my babysitter, and that's how I kind of got addicted um, to that side of my life. And so, you know, Field of Dreams. It didn't. It's one of those things where you're when you you first see something. I guess I was maybe 12 when it came out. And so I know for a fact that I saw Field of Dreams in a theater. I don't remember my reaction to it because my whole summer that summer was Batman talking about uh, nostalgia. Like that was the, I bought into the Batmania, like the whole, it, it swept over me. I was convinced watching the movie. I saw it in New York with my aunt and my uncle at a midnight show in a, in a let's say a Flatbush theater, a Brooklyn theater. And I came out of that movie convinced that I'd seen the greatest movie I'd ever seen. The hype was so great and the crowd was so great. And the movie for a 12-year-old, it really hit all those buttons. So I don't remember my reaction to Fill the Dreams because like I said, I was immersed in the Batmania. And then later, it was just, it's one of those things where I was in high school, I believe it was my senior year and I was sick and it was on TV. Field the dreams came on TV and I was in my bed. And so I thought, well, I'll just watch this. I remember seeing it and liking it. And I remember just watching it on the TV itself. There was kind of an effect that it had on me. There was kind of a magic that I, I couldn't quite place. And then at the end, because again, I didn't get to play a game of catch with my real dad for obvious reasons. And then I didn't get to play a game of catch with my stepdad, who now I call dad until I was 13 or 14 when, when he uh, and my mom got married. So just that ending of, Hey dad, you want to have a catch? It just, it did something to me that I don't know if I was mature enough for. I, I knew it affected me. And it's, it's just one of, the, I think it might've been the first instance besides movies that I got addicted to like Jaws or Superman that got me addicted to movies or the quality of movie making itself. Filled the Dreams was different because it, uh, it made me different. Like I was different at the other side of it. And I remember going downstairs to talk to my parents and thinking, I just watched Filled the Dreams on TV. And they're like, oh yeah, how was it? I was like, I think, I think that might be my favorite movie of all time. I, I don't know. Because again, I was just, it was different for me. And then it's become kind of a tradition to watch it every year on my birthday, just to kind of keep it refreshed and not let it get too old, but again, not to watch it too much. And it's just one of those movies. Again, everybody has that connection to it with Ray and his dad at the end, having that game and you know, finally having that connection with each other and just realizing that I didn't have that connection until I was late, late in my teens. Again, that's very personal. And I think that's kind of what you look for, and more than Batman, I mean, Batman just ap appealed to the, like the lizard brain in me, but Field the Dreams affected me at a much deeper level. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's part of why this, mo this movie, cards on the table, this was a first time watch for me. This is one that I had never seen before. And I, I knew, and I think part of the reason that I hadn't watched it is just because I it's one of those movies that was so in the zeitgeist. Like yeah. you had, you didn't ever have to see a frame of this movie to know 
if you build it, you will come. It's been in, in little bits of pieces of pop culture that I've seen over the years. I think there's a there's a scene in like uh, How I Met Your Mother, the sitcom, which I used to be really into, where they're like all bonding. The three male characters are all bonding and getting emotional over the end of this movie. And so it has kind of this cliche, like, you know, the cliche movie that'll make men cry kind of thing. And that's sort of the the reputation that it carries. So watching it now, I, it's, I was trying to kind of shake that off and watch it with fresh eyes. And it, it's, it's, it, was a, it actually was a lot different than I, than I thought it would be. Like I felt, I thought the, the whole movie was going to be him building the baseball field. Meanwhile, 19 minutes in, there's a baseball player, yeah. Ray Liotta, as Shoeless Joe, the title character of, of the, the novel that this is based on. And I thought that it's, it's a much more deliberately paced film than I, than I expected. Yeah, that's the, it's hard. I like when you talk about like, there's, there's some movies that are just in the lexicon so heavy, like Psycho or Jaws or Star Wars, where even if you haven't seen a frame of the movie, you've seen it because it's kind of seeped into your consciousness from everybody else talking about it. I kind of have the same thing. I kind of just cards on the table as well. I've kind of given up on superhero movies because I think I've gotten everything I need out of them. And so I'm not like in a big rush to, so I still haven't seen Infinity War or Endgame. But mm-hmm. the thing with being on Twitter is I feel like I have seen them because if you're yeah. going to make the decision to not watch a movie that's that much in the zeitgeist, you have to either get off of social media or you have to use certain words and and mute them so you can avoid that. And so I just made the decision, well, if I'm not going to watch these movies, I just have to be open to spoilers and I can't be upset. So even though I haven't seen those movies, which are big in the lexicon now, I feel like I've seen them. And so that I, I absolutely understand that. And it's, I think... That's that's another issue with, you know, watching these movies that I, I think when you watch a movie and people have told you it's the greatest thing they've ever seen. And you hear that so much that by the time you you sit down and watch it, it's it's overhyped for you. And so you walk out of it going, oh, that wasn't all that I meant. I thought that was going to be. And I like that you say that because the story does kind of keep twisting in new different directions and, and yeah. leading Ray on a new path. So let me ask you a question. I mean, watching this for the first time and having it kind of seep into your conscience, did the movie play well for you or did it, did it have that kind of brush off kind of quality? No, no. I thought it was really good. I enjoyed it a lot, actually. I, I don't have the the same personal connection to it that a lot of people do, but I was I found it very sweet and very earnest and and sentimental in a way that I could see how people some people would be cynical and turn against it, like, oh, that movie where the you know where it builds to this this climax that's very that's very sentimental and, and I think that's a good thing, but other people I could see how they would they would reject it, like kind of just on principle, un- unjustly, I would say. But no, I was really plugged in for, I watched it late at night last night, actually. I went to see a movie in theaters and then came back and I was like, all right, I'm going to put on Field of Dreams. And I st- stuck with it all the way through. And it was, it's very engaging. I think seeing Costner, not only in his heyday, but his performance here, he's he's very bemused for most of it. Like I thought yeah. his performance and that of the people around him that were experiencing this magic, I, I thought that was really, that was really added like a new level of entertainment value to it as well. Like, he's just like, huh, this is really interesting. Like kind yeah. of, kind of curious about how this is all going. And I, and I thought it was, it, it does keep twisting and turning in surprising ways. Like I said, when, when Ray Liotta shows up 19 minutes in, I'm like, oh, wow, I, I did, thought this was going to be the end with the baseball players show up. But there's it's it's a much more, you know, a much 
more elaborate journey than that. And I think it's the kind of movie we don't see anymore. You know, when people say, oh, what happened to the like mid-budget, like adult, like a movie for grownups, this kind of thing would be like direct to Hulu or Netflix nowadays. And I think that's that's a real shame. It's just, it's a testament to how much the industry has changed. Yeah, I think we're kind of addicted to IP and like the big blockbusters. And that's, yeah. if that's going to make you money, that's obviously what the studios are. And I think movies like this are out there. They're just like, they're few and far between or you have to go looking for them. You have to hunt for them and as opposed to them just being out there and just for you to discover yourself, you have to actually look for these magic experiences. I like that you mentioned the sentimentality because that can put a lot of people off. I know Frank Capra movies in the, in the forties, fifties, thirties, whatever they Capra had a very sentimentality to him that people kind of, you know, fought back against. They didn't like, what is this like, why is this not cynical? Why is this like happy all the time? Why is this trying to push the idea of happy thoughts? And, you know, Pauline Kale, who pushed hard against Capra a lot of the time, she pushed hard against this movie too. I mean, she has, I think it says in her review that it's, a, if you, if you in a theater with people and you look around and see that the theater's moved and you realize that you're not moved the same way, you might feel like a churl or you might feel like you're missing something or that you're kind of a jerk. And I don't, I don't think that's a, an issue because sentimentality, it, it affects you in a different way. And right. you, you mentioned that you didn't have quite the connection and that, that's fine. I think when we talk about our favorite movies and things like that, we kind of get offended when somebody doesn't like the movie that, that speaks to you personally. And I, I think that's a mistaken way because you can't, I can't expect you, Rob, to watch Feel the Dreams and have it have the same effect on you that it did on me because it's a different experience me watching it than you watching it. You know what I mean? So I think there's just too much, especially on Twitter, there's too much of a pushback of everybody has to agree with my, my point of view. Or if somebody says, this is my favorite movie, a lot of people feel like they have to push back and say, well, that's dumb that that's your favorite movie. It's like, well, why, yeah. why can't we just appreciate each other, you know, and, and our likes and have conversations based off of that? And part of the benefit of me doing this show and having people bring movies that they're passionate about is one, it keeps the the discourse on the positive side. I don't want to just, I don't want to come onto the mic every time and then be like, oh, let's tear this thing apart. Because that's, I don't get enjoyment out of that. I mean, why, why, what, what is the point of this? This is all supposed to be inspiring, fun, whatever. It's entertainment. It's just not to put other people's opinions down or tear down the work of others, whether they work for us or not. Like you said, it is so it's completely objective as all art forms are. And so having people come on and bring a movie that means something to them almost every single time, it's something that I've been meaning to watch and just hadn't gotten around to and finally gives me an excuse to do so. And I, I almost always walk away with a new appreciation for the movie. Even if, if I liked it, I like it more. If I, if I was a little mixed on it, I kind of lean more, toward, more towards the favorable side of it just because I'm seeing a different perspective and it's kind of, I'm growing as a, as a cinephile, as a student of pop culture, just as we all are. And I think that, yeah, I don't really uh, obviously completely reject that, that discourse of people being like, well, you're either with me or against me. I'm like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> this is movie. This is, this is art. It is not, it is not right or wrong. Everything is totally up to uh, the individual. And I think just because if I even just because I don't have the same emotional connection to this movie, that's a big difference for me coming on here and be like, well, Darren, I think you're wrong for like <laughs> field of dreams. And here's why. Like that, that's, yeah, that's not what we're about here. And I, I think this is a good movie in a way to start 
this show off because it is such such a personal movie to you, but it is such a personal movie to a lot of people, the, to a lot of people who have have you know their own personal history with their father, with their parents, and me now being a parent. My wife and I have a, a four year old, and we have another one due this fall. And Congrats. so it's thank you, thank you. And so <laughs> it's for me watching it as a father relating to my kids and then relating to the Kevin Costner character who has a daughter of his own. And it's really, to me, it's another one of those sports movies that's not really about sports. If you really, if you're really paying attention. Uh, So that's one thing I wanted to ask you, are you, are you a big baseball fan? Are you a big sports guy? Or is that just kind of circumstantial here? Yeah. I used to be really, really, uh, we mentioned again, on the podcast before that I I'm not the greatest. It's like basketball and football don't come naturally to me. I, I kind of feel like I've got like two left feet out there when I'm playing, but baseball is one where I'm not going to say that I'm, I'm the best baseball player, but it's the, ba- it's the one sport where I feel comfortable and I can do it. And right. so when I was growing up as a teenager, especially around the time this movie came out, I, I did get addicted to baseball as a big New York Mets fan. I could tell you all their stats, their RBIs, like they're the history of the players. You know, my favorite player, Keith Hernandez, back in the day, I could talk back in the day, I could talk all about that stuff. And so I agree with you that this is it's got sports in it, but it's not like when people say what's a great baseball movie. I don't think of Field of Dreams as a baseball movie because it's not technically about when you say it's a sports movie, it's a golf movie. I think, oh, well, you're going to come down to a big golf game or if it's a basketball movie like Hoosiers or or it's going to be about playing a big basketball game and this it doesn't this movie does not come down to that it's not about the sport of baseball it is about the love of it and the way that Ray Liotta is Shoeless Joe he talks about like you could feel the crunch of the grass on his feet the smell Mm -hmm. of the, the ballpark all of that stuff and the thrill of the grass that's that's a phrase that stayed with me it describes baseball to a T if you are a baseball fan then this movie will speak to you. It, it's not a fake celebration of baseball. It knows baseball. It knows its history, but it, it's not related to what it's about. It's about the growing up and fathers and sons, like you talked about, and the pastimes and what it means uh, to you growing up. That's what it's about. So it's not so much about playing the game, even though you, you do see the, the White Sox play. And like you mentioned too, it, it does have that love of baseball and it does have the thing that attracts me, which is the, the father and son thing. Like I get really emotional uh, about father and son stories. Like I'll be what there'll be something that happens in a movie and there'll be a father and son uh, connection that happens and I'll just start crying. And I, for a second, I don't know why, but I realized, oh, that's because I had a thing with, with my father. I never got to play catch with him. And then when I played catch with my stepdad, the thing that, that you take for granted Like if you grow up with a dad and you play games of catch with them all the time, you kind of take for granted of what that means. If you don't have that. So the first game of catch that I had with my stepdad, that meant a lot to me. And it was very emotional. The first game of catch that I had with my oldest son when he was old enough to play that it's passing that kind of generational uh, rite of passage. You're passing that along from, you know, children to children to children. And I think it gets that. But it also gets baseball. It also you know, it has the good performances. It has the good filmmaking, the uh, magic hour shot. So it's not just one thing. It's about faith and it's about redemption. It's just a little bit of everything, but it's building to that scene with Ray and his dad that it kind of, I personally, I count that as my favorite twist ending of all time because I did not see that coming. Good night, Ray. Good night, John. 
catch? I'd like that. It is building to that. And you do get emotional. And the other thing that I get emotional about is when Ray introduces his wife and his daughter to his dad, mm. like I never got to do that with my real dad. You know what I mean? And so yeah. that's emotional too. Um, so yeah, it's just, you're basic. sorry, I went on a huge tangent, but you're talking no, about that's, baseball. That's, great. It's, that's why I don't really think of it as a baseball movie so much as a rite of passage movie that happens to be about baseball. It's about baseball in a way, in the same way that Rudy, which is a movie I did, and I also hadn't seen, and did a podcast on recently earlier this year. Yeah. In that way, that that's about football. It's it's about pursuing. It's about pursuing a passion. It's about in in, in your to your point. It's about kind of how parents want to pass on certain interests or share a passion of something that they're really that really means something to them with their children. It's about finding sort of finding direction. I think in life it's, it, it was getting early on in the first like 15, 20 minutes when he's hearing the voices I was getting, and, and the rest of the movie is not really related to this that much. I, I feel like I was getting a little bit of shades of like close encounters of how he's like kind of in the suburban yeah. life, not really present sort of having a somewhat of a midlife crisis so to speak, and and trying to sort of find his way and and make peace with with certain elements of his past and kind of move forward. And so I really related to all of that because I'm I'm going to be as of this recording I'm about to be 38. So I'm like <laughs> right in that zone where I'm like getting ready to be like, yeah, what is what am I doing here? What is <laughs> I connected to that because the character of uh, of Ray in this movie we get sort of a a quick kind of download of everything his life up to this point. It's, you know, his wife is like, maybe we should buy a farm and they buy a farm. And he's like, I don't know about farming. And it, it feels like he's a character when the movie starts that is without agency and sort of over the course of the movie by do by doing these these kind of good works onto, you know, those around him. The James Earl Jones character and and all the players that show up, Shoeless Joe and and uh, Moonlight Graham and all of this, he sort of finds his purpose, his place, and makes peace with with his father and never and the the kind of fractured relationship that they had. And so that the thematic stuff is is what really connected to me. Yeah. And he mentions that right from the beginning. I, I absolutely agree with you. Like he talks about their time at Berkeley where they're part of the hippie movement and it's just, they're getting swept up in a wave of purpose. So they're doing what they think is important but they're not really making their own decisions, I guess you could say. And Annie's kind of defined by that. I mean, it, it you see that come out in her, especially when they go to the, the PTA meeting and she has that rebelliousness that comes out. But Ray, like that's his big thing from the beginning. He's like, my dad never did anything courageous. Like, I'm afraid I'm going to turn into my dad. And so that's what kind of pushes him to make these, and, and who knows who it is trying to tell to who's put, doing the pushing, but he decides to accept that call and, and actually make it happen. And that, that's a big, and like you said, the thematics of it, it, it runs all through the movie and he kind of makes everybody else, he improves everybody else's life because he's doing these things, you know, maybe not so much of the goodness of his own heart. He's just kind of pulled by the idea of I've never done anything meaningful and I'm just going to go for it. And I, I really like how you talked about how he's just kind of, well, this is interesting. Like he kind of, he reacts to it. I think yeah. The, the biggest thing, when I think of the word, the term magic realism, yeah. 
And again, I don't know if people are familiar with that. I know you probably are, but it's the fantastical or the fantasy invading in kind of like ordinary life. And when you do magic realism, like Enchanted does that, Pan's Labyrinth does that, those are all examples of magic realism. You have to, and then there's the bad examples. Like I think there's a movie called Winter's Tale with uh, Colin Farrell. And then we'll, yeah. And the, the problem with that movie is it just expects you to go along with it. Nobody reacts to anything like thing like Will Smith shows up as the devil in the past and like a rock roll t-shirt. It's like, what's going on? Like they never explain that this is supposed to be different. And the thing that, that works so beautifully about this movie is every time there's a new element that comes up, the screenplay gives the characters time to react to sit back and go, this is strange. Like, I don't know, like, but the last thing worked. So maybe we'll try this, ease his pain. Maybe we'll try this, go the distance. And they, it keeps, like you said, it's not just one thing. It keeps pushing Ray in a new direction. And, but every time I especially like the part and it, like I said, it never gives up on it. I like the part where they pick up young Archie and he says, I'm Archie Graham and Ray and Terrence, they have a moment where they're like, they shake their head in disbelief and they're like, mm-hmm. well, I guess, I guess we're doing this now. And the whole movie, I, I just think it works so well because like I said, it, it gives those characters time to breathe and time to accept everything so that you as an audience, yeah, that is weird, but okay, we're going with it. And so you're, you're invested in the story, I think, because the characters are invested. I think it's just, it's beautiful the way that it does that. And it does so without really, without really trying to explain it. I think that's, there's famously in uh, Groundhog Day or famously early on, there was a, a version of the script where they were like, he, I think he's, he's Bill Murray's character like slept with a gypsy woman or whatever. Yeah. And so she, she curses him and that's why he's living. It's like the, it, the, the less is more approach, I think is best applied when it comes to magic realism. And I think if they had really dove into, oh, it's because, you know, his, if they had tried to rationalize it, I think it would have it would have taken away from the the sort of awe and wonder of it. And I think it works as well as sort of a a, a bit of Americana. You have that that great exchange a couple of times where someone's like, "Is this heaven?" And it's like, "No, this it's Iowa," <laughs> which I thought was really was really was really sweet and and funny at the same time. There's a, there's a lot of light, gentle humor in here that I think really kept things moving along. I think this is a light and funny movie. Everybody's got a sense of humor. Everybody, even Mark, who's ostensibly the villain, like he has funny moments when he almost, he walks, he's oblivious and he walks under the field and he almost gets hit by a ball. He doesn't know that he's ruined the play. And it's it's got a lot of, you know, the part that that really, I remember watching it on that TV on, on my sickbed was when Ray takes Terrence, actually, first of all, when he pretends to have the gun, <laughs> and yeah. what do you do? It's like, I'm going to beat you with a crowbar until you go away. And he's like, you're not going to do that. It's like, oh no, what do you think? Cause you're a pacifist. And he's like, oh shit, you know? <laughs> and then they go to the baseball game and Ray asks him like, what do you want? And he gives that speech, but I want people to think for themselves. I want people to start bothering. And he goes off for like two minutes and Ray goes, no, no, no. I mean, what do you want? And the, yeah, the shot that was cuts, great. Yeah. It cuts to the hot dog stand. It's, and he's, oh, dog in a beer. It's, it's, and he obviously has the step outside, you Nazi cow moment. I, I love the part where Ray's looking for Terrence and he runs into that old Jewish woman. And she, you know, she's like, I don't told you, I don't know where she lived. Don't get away from me. This, it's humor. <laughs> and even, I know they cast Ray Liotta because he's kind of a threat. He kind of felt threatening, but even he has a warmth when he's, he's talking, when they bring Terrence and Terrence is seeing all the baseball players and they're mentioning all these names and, 
And uh, Shoeless Joe goes, yeah, we, this, these people came and that person came and Ty Cobb wanted to come, but none of us can stand the son of a bitch from his life. So we told him <laughs> to stick it, you know, that it's got, everybody's got this kind of warm, it's, it's not punchline jokes. It's just these warm character moments. And aside from the biggie, the, the big emotional beat at the end, I think it kind of warms me and it, maybe it warms, warmed you, or maybe it warms the viewer up to that moment where you recognize these people as humans with actual hopes and dreams. And they have moments of humor and they have moments of sadness. And, you know, Archibald Graham, Burt Lancaster, as he's talking about, you know, if, if I did play baseball, I would never have been able to be a great doctor. It has that longing. I think every person in here is, has recognizable human traits you know when young archie winks at the at the pitcher that kind of like freaks the guy out it, it's got mm -hmm. all everybody has everything that happens everybody has a recognizable human trait and i think that's really what sells the movie for me is it feels it doesn't feel i guess it feels written in a way but it doesn't feel written because you know why they're doing it you know, like you, you that was obviously a humorous point or that was a sad point but it doesn't feel written at the same time because everything feels so natural and, and that, that's a big part of what affects me and, and kind of gears me toward that ending working so well. Yeah. I, I really love the, the dynamic in the marriage too, the way that yeah. she's so supportive of him. And the, I think that the contrast between Ray and Annie is that PTA scene that you mentioned, like she is so clear in in what she believes in what she's willing to fight for what she stands for the values that she stands for and i feel like ray is much more nebulous that he's he's a little bit lost i think at, at yeah. this point in the movie and that that scene is so important because it establishes that she is she has a clear sense of self and he's a little lacking and so she's trying to kind of encourage him along like she even says if you think that you should do this Hmm. And you're sure that you want to do this. I think then, then you should do this. And but I she's also, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's, she's also realistic. She's the wife. She's the voice of reason. Like when he says, I need to go to Boston or, and I need to find Terrence Mann. She's like, we don't have the money for you to do this way. You, you can't keep doing this. We've got other responsibilities, but you know, then obviously the, the dream thing comes in. She's a realist. And again, I think that goes with the magic realism that she's not just blindly going along with it. She's very supportive. And I do get emotional at that part where she says, if this, if you feel like you need to do this, I will be there for you. And I will, I will yeah. be supportive. And that's, I think even Amy Madigan, she says that in the the interviews, like she was amazed by, it's not just a sexual relationship. It's not just, a, they're an actual living couple. And again, that goes, thank you for bringing that up because I'm, I would have been upset if we didn't talk about that is they're, they feel like a real couple with hopes and dreams and responsibilities that they just can't ignore. It would be too easy for this movie to just be like, oh, and then she's fighting him every step of the way. I love that the, it goes the complete opposite direction. And I thought Amy Madigan was amazing in this. Actually. Yeah, yeah. And it's the, the like I said, I don't even think Mark's really a villain. He's, he's acting out of love. But the only reason we think of him as a villain is because he conflicts with Ray's goals, which is technically what an antagonist is. But I don't think of him as a mustache from there's There's a part where Ray is out with Terrence and he's trying to find Moonlight Graham and she she calls Annie and she's like, she's being very kind of quiet. And then it has a shot where it cuts and it's, you see Mark and his two like business associates and it's shot in a way that's like almost film nourish, <laughs> like they're in shadow. So it's supposed to be villainous. But again, he's, 
I think he's acting in a way and he's just being a little too forward with it. He's like, you're going to lose your farm, but you're my sister. I don't want you to lose your farm. So I'm going to step in and I'm going to make sure that. And so that's why he comes off as, as, as villainous there. So that's where the antagonism comes in. And you, you obviously get scenes with the town thinking he's nuts, like thinking Ray's crazy for doing these things. That's where that comes from. But we're that's again, that's natural. People would be thinking that I know, Annie's more of a support system, but the, the person that lives acres away or a mile away, they're not going to understand why Ray's doing this. So of course they're going to be like, this fool's going to lose his farm, that kind of thing. And it, again, all these things that we're talking about, it adds to that realism of the movie that sells the magic of it. I think. You mentioned earlier about the theme of faith. Obviously the only people that it starts out with Ray and Annie and their daughter being the only ones that, that can see the, the ball players. What do you think that this movie has to say about faith and the fact that Annie's brother and uh, most people in the town can't see what's really happening? What do you think it's what do you think the messaging Field of Dreams is trying to say about faith or, or kind of otherwise? What's the mission statement here? Well, again, we talked about them being hippies. And again, the hippie is kind of like a free, a freestyle movement. It's like, be who you are and don't be constrained. And I I think Mark, again, he's being a businessman. He is constrained by it. He is cynical about things. He just sees everything in black and white. Annie, Ray's obviously, like we talked about, he's open to the suggestion of making these movements toward whatever goal. Again, he doesn't know what goal he's going for. He's just going for it because he states very explicitly at the beginning, I just feel like I'm becoming my dad and I don't want that to happen. The voice comes in and he says, okay, this is my chance. And so he does it. So he's the one that's blindly going for it, even though he does sit back on occasion and go, well, I didn't expect that. And then Annie, because she's the support system, she's like, well, I believe in you. And so that's why she's able to see it. I think uh, Karen, she just, because kids, they don't know the difference. They just believe anything when they grow up. And it's, and so that's why she's able to see the baseball players. Um, that was an interesting kind of twist where you find out that Mark and his wife and, and their their mom can't see the baseball and they think it's a joke and they think they're that the, the Kinsellas are being mean or mean-spirited. And then when he goes to find Terrence, again, that's ease his pain. It's not just talking about his dad. It's also talking about Terrence is in pain. Like he's kind of given up on his dreams and he doesn't write. And so he that's why he fights Ray the whole time. It's like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go blindly with this. And then Again, if I get if I get emotional because there's I tr- whenever I try watching this movie, there isn't five minutes to go by without me kind of tearing up or breaking down into tears. Mm-hmm. That's because it's sad or because it's ha- just because I think everything is so pitch perfect that it kind of hits me in that way. But what I love is when he takes Terrence to the game and he hears him go the distance and he sees Moonlight Graham's stats and he writes it all down and he looks over and Terrence hasn't seen it. He's like, well, I guess you didn't have to be here. And Terrence is still, he thinks that Ray's crazy at the beginning, but he goes along with it because he has, maybe there's a faith that he has that he needs to to accept. And even when he drops Terrence off and he's like, Terrence goes, what did you see? And it's like, it said, leave the man alone. And and Terrence is very human. He's like, okay, like I, you're, you're not a crazy person. You're saying, and he leaves. And then when Ray turns around and it's that shot of the headlights that come on Terrence and he goes, moonlight Graham and, and James Horner's music hits. And then he runs out and it's just that thing of, I was like, what did you, what did you see Terrence? And Terrence, goes, I, I, I don't know. What did I see? And it's like, look, this is, it, it this is the voice. It, it 
brought me out here to, to find you and to show you something like, what did you see? And it's just, and the way that Terrence just accepts is like, go the distance. It's like, you know, yes. And he has that moment of we're believing. And I think, and they keep going and, and they go and they, they reach the town where, where Moonlight Graham is. And there's just that magic that sweeps over about how, what a great doctor he was. They don't find out anything about him being a baseball player. They find out about what a, a like a godsend he was to this town. And like this, the story with the blue hats or, you know, how he was just kind to everybody. And then when Burt Lancaster shows up, who's one of our great classic film actors, you're kind of primed for that. And it's, he goes, I need you to come with me. And he's like, like I mentioned before, it's like, I, I can't leave this town. You know, uh, I can't, my wife is waiting for me. We can't do this. And so they go, okay, well, that's, I guess that's where we're going. And when they pick up young Archie, again, it's, you're picking up faith as you go and like raise, again, you're getting the film. This is crazy. Like, I don't know why these people are doing this, but every iteration that happens, you as an audience member, you know, maybe you don't, maybe if the sentimentality pushes against it, you don't feel this, but you start picking up on that faith. And that's where it comes down to Terrence. Ray, people will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. For it is money they have and peace they like. Ray, just sign the papers. And they'll walk out to the bleachers. Sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. They'll find they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines. Where they sat when they were children and cheered their heroes. And they'll watch the game. And it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick that I have to brush them away from their faces. Ray, when the bank opens in the morning, they'll foreclose. People will come, Ray. You're broke, Ray. You sell now or you lose everything. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. It's like you've got, like you've got to have faith that people will believe in something good, and this message mm -hmm. will get out there. And I think that's the important thing, is it's trying to teach you not to be cynical. It's trying to teach you to accept, take that leap, to take chances, and you know, not obviously you want to be realistic about it. Don't endanger your family, or anything like that. But it's the faith that you're taking, and by making these good choices that he's doing, whether he knows what he's doing or not, he's rewarded for it. It's about, the story's about, if you have faith, you'll be redeemed. You'll get what you need out of life. Not necessarily what you want, but you'll get what you need and you'll be fulfilled. I think that's the, the message that I really take away from the movie and why it means so much to me. 
And again, the the game of catch that ties in, it's like, I never had a game of catch with my dad. I think Ray even says that it's, or, or I, the, I can't remember the last time I had a game of catch with my dad. And so he's redeemed and he he's able to, to find that piece of himself again, because he believes in all these things because he takes the leap. And yeah, it's, it's kind of a bit of a cheat. Doc Graham comes out and like Mark is able to see, and there's that really funny shot where Mark reacts like, what the, f-? you know, because <laughs> he sees him step out for no reason. And then there's the, yeah. the laugh line is like, where do these baseball players come from? It's yeah. because he's had it forced on him finally. And he, there, he, even he has faith because he's human. I don't know. Maybe that's getting way too far away from your, your initial question. No, but. no, no. I think, I, I think you're right. I think there's a line in the movie that I, I think Terrence says, or he says he's talking about baseball and he says, uh, it reminds us of all that is good and could be again. And I think that's where, that's where the movie is about baseball, but not about baseball. And the baseball is obviously America's pastime, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But it's really, it's really a metaphor for, like we were saying, that sort of purity, that the decency, that like childlike innocence. And this is this to me is the kind of movie that that emphasizes the, the importance of being of being a good person, or the importance of not only following your dreams but having a moral code and and pursuing them. You know what I mean? It just it it's yeah. the same reason. It, it felt to me very similar kind of sentiment to why. Even in my late 30s now, if I hear too much of the Rainbow Connection or oh. <laughs> the end of the Muppet movie, which I tweeted about this not long ago, and it's like, life's like a movie, write your own ending, keep believing, keep pretending. And I'm like, it's like this pure <laughs> way voice. of looking at the world. Thank you. I didn't even do the Kermit voice. I could do the Kermit <laughs> voice, but we were, I wasn't trying to. It's 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 the the way that when, when we were kids, we see the world as a place full of possibilities. And then the older we get, the more we kind of shut down certain opportunities or certain people or certain ways of looking at the world, or we become those angry people on Twitter being like, well, you must like this movie. Otherwise to hell with you. Yeah. And, and I, and I think that this film is, is really about just kind of being true to yourself and, and, treat others as you, it sounds cliche, but yeah. treat others as you want to be treated, enjoy, take pleasure in the little things in life, whether it's spending time with your family or getting a catch with your dad or attending a baseball game. You know, I think it's sort of a, a bonding baseball as, as an activity that brings people together and that, that taps into your inner child. And I think that's why, yeah. why this movie, whether you're a sports fan or not, doesn't really matter. It's, it's sort of just, it's, it's just a means to an end in that way. Yeah. And it's it, like you said, it's just the, the metaphor. It could be anything. It could be about football. It could be about tennis. It could be about watching Disney cartoons with your family as a kid. It, they could have taken any kind of uh, story and, and kind of did the same thing. And it's just because it's, I have the connection to baseball. I have the connection to fathers and sons. I have the connection mm-hmm. to the, that game of catch. That's why it means something to me. But again, it could be completely different for you. It could be the same story, but if that's what we're talking about with connections, if, if you're connected to Disney movies and that's what the movie, what the movie is actually about, it's about finding that inner child again. And it tells the story in the same way, just with that as the metaphor, then you're going to connect to that. You know what I mean? If, if it's football that you have the connection to and the movie's about that, you connect to that. This, this is a movie that just happens to be about baseball and it happens to use that as the pastime. And like you said, it's about being a good person and not letting the cynicism kind of run your life. 
you know, being hopeful and, and going for your goals and being true to yourself. I think that's the important lesson here, whether or not it's about baseball. I think that's a, a hard thing too, is to be able to look, well, this is just about baseball and I hate baseball. So I, I have no connection to that or, or my father was abusive. Right. And so I'm glad I never got to have a game of catch with him. You know, it's just, you can kind of push back against those things. But like I said, the story could be about anything told in the same way and it would affect that person in the same way that affects me as this movie exists as it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, and the Terrence Grant, the Terrence Mann character is also later in life at a later point in his life, obviously than, than Ray is, but also kind of lost his way and, and his reconnects with, with his passion, with his, with his, I guess, inner child or whatever you want to call it by yeah. the end of the movie, but to the point that he's invited and, and goes across the field into the corn with them, which I don't know. Are, in your opinion, Darren, are we supposed to read that as him crossing over, or what? What is what are your what are you, is kind of your theory? Because the movie wisely, I think, doesn't really explain exactly where they're taking him. Well, it's not something that I usually think about because I just accept the movie as as, as face value as he's able to cross over, so we can see he he needs that connection. But if thinking about it now, and maybe I've thought about this before, I just haven't put it into words. I maybe I think of it as. Terrence is the gateway like he's going to go and he's going to see these things and he'll be able to come back and he'll be able to be that journalist again and be able to report on it, which is what he's excited for when he goes out there. I don't know. Like, I agree with you. It wisely, it kind of leaves it out in the open. It's like, how is young Archie able to cross over? Like, you know how Shoeless Joe, he says, I can't cross these white rocks. Like, I can't cross this part of the field. Mm -hmm. How is Archie Graham able to step past it and become, you know, Dot Graham? It's like, it has all these things where... You know, I don't think we can get caught up in like the the little the, the intricacies and the details of what means what. But I don't think that's I think that kind of ruins the experience for you. you're just by that point, you're supposed to accept it as space values. These are just the things that are happening. And it like all great movies are all great pieces of literature or art. It exists past what you're seeing. Like, who knows what goes? It's, it's not just like he has that game of catch and then that's it. You know what I mean? And the movie ends. You see the the rows and the miles and miles of cars coming to take take part in it. It's opening up to a new story. So I think that's you talking about Terrence. It's interesting. I don't think that's necessarily the the point, but I, I think that might be what I I think that's probably what happens. He's able to be the gateway and he's able to report on these things and teach these people that are coming to see and have them have that kind of focal. So I guess that's what I would what I would think about a Terrence man's uh, fate at the end. I, I also loved the, the Moonlight Graham storyline where he, he says at one point that he doesn't wish, he doesn't look back at his life and wish he had become a baseball player. He thinks of all the lives that he's saved yeah. as a doctor. And it goes back to what I was saying about giving to your community, being a good person, taking care of, of others and, and looking out of outwardly and to, make a difference, make a positive impact on the world, essentially. And he's able to do that as a doctor to the point where in the, towards the end of the movie, as we were saying, he crosses over to to, to kind of check on, on Karen and sacrifices his ability to kind of go back in doing so. And I think it's, it's that kind of selflessness that, that, that really underscores sort of the, the message of what the movie is all about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, that's that's a, a great way of looking at it. 
Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. <laughs> so you mentioned that you you watch this, I guess, annually. Yeah. How has your how has your read of the film changed over time? I mean, as as you've gotten older and kind of you know your perspective has changed. Is there is there anything that you you didn't notice or appreciate? I mean, you mentioned earlier when you first saw it, you remembered liking it. But is there any anything else that you how you details you've noticed or themes or moments that resonated with you that you didn't really see before that maybe just as you've become a parent in your, your own right that you're you sort of circled back to yeah i think when you start studying films and start studying older films and cinematography and things like that you kind of look uh, for those things that kind of tick all the boxes when you're watching movies i think the thing i always find something new to be charmed by again i watched the movie once a year because you know 365 or 66 days go by or whatever. And it's just kind of sitting down and reaffirming or, or refocusing on what's important. And I think that the movie does that for me. It makes it, okay, either I'm doing a good job or I need to refocus or I've been ignoring this part of my life. And mm-hmm. so uh, that's why I watch it annually. I don't want to watch it so much that it, it gets old, but I do want to watch it enough to say, and I, I don't want to overdo it. I think if it gets to the point where I can I'm still not at the point, even though I've seen it maybe 30 times, you know, once a year, I I don't know what comes next. I can't, I can't tell you like Princess Bride, I can quote every single line of dialogue as it comes. I'm not quite at that point yet because I'm always kind of caught up and I forget that it's movie dialogue. I forget that it's like written. I forget that it's camera tricks and things like that. And the thing again, that I notice every time is there's not like, there's certain shots, like some shots that stick out to me is when you first see Shoeless Joe, Karen comes in and says, there's a man in our in our field. And Ray looks out and you see kind of uh, Shoeless Joe in the silhouette. That's a gorgeous shot. Obviously, the shot at the end when you see all the, um, you know, the cars or the shot where the shot that really appeals to me is when Terrence Mann is giving his speech. And earlier when Ray is talking to Karen and he's explaining what he loves about Shoeless Joe or what his dad loved about Shoeless Joe, is he would say, like, you could see him, like he could tell where the ball was going to go because he could sense the pitch and he would, he would duck down and he, he could sense where the ball was going to be hit to. And there, when Terrence and there's a shot of all the baseball players standing behind him and you notice Ray stands up and he's looking for shoot for Joe and he sees Joe out in the middle of the field. And as he's, as everybody's waiting for Ray's answer, Joe kind of ducks down and he's getting ready for the pitch. Like he knows what's coming. That's, that's a great shot but it's a quiet shot. I think this is one of those movies where there's, there's nothing like super stand out about it. There's no performance that super stand out of the towers above the rest. There's no, every single shot is in a masterpiece. I think every single shot, every single scene, every single line of dialogue, it accomplishes what it needs to accomplish. And as a compendium, as a combination working as a whole, that's why the movie to me is like a magic movie because all these little pieces are working together to make a fulfilling whole. And that's, that's what I notice, or that's what I'm reaffirmed with every time I watch the movie. There's sort of a, a quiet dignity or, or quiet, like a, a, a simplicity to it that I think is part of the magic as well. Yeah. You know, they, there's a line in here that they're talking about heaven and it's a, is this heaven? It's like, it's the place where dreams come true, which I thought was a really beautiful which is a really beautiful line and be- really beautiful point to make about whether it's the baseball field, wherever you feel like you're your truest self for these players, it's on the baseball field. As I said, hadn't seen this movie before. wasn't what I was expecting. I didn't know we were going to get a, a, a time travel sequence, essentially, <laughs> yeah. where Kevin Costner is like back in 1972. 
mm-hmm. um, speaking with Dr. Graham. Like I did, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know Burt Lancaster was even in this. So I, it was, it was a really, really fun and sort of enlightening watch for me. And obviously I know the answer to this, but it's, you, <laughs> you, you talk about nostalgia on your show and how sometimes things, for example, my entire 12th birthday was centered around the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie, which is essentially a dog shit movie, <laughs> objectively. But when I watch it, I'm like, oh, I've been ooze. I remember I had the little action figure from, from Burger King or whatever. Is this, in your opinion, an obje- objectively good film or is this you know, just a nostalgic favorite? Well, that's hard. And it's one of the reasons why a movie like this, I won't, I don't know if I'll, we'll, and again, this is why when we talked earlier about guesting on 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 your show, it's like, well, this will give me a chance to talk about Fill the Dreams. You know, I I don't think it's going to be ever talked about. I talk about it sporadically, and everybody I think that that listens to every episode of our our podcast, they know that this is my favorite movie, and they know that it means a lot to me, and they know why it means a lot to me because I talk about that quite a bit. So right. again, that's like just using as an example. I remember growing up with Transformers the movie. And we did an episode on that. And yeah, I remember all the feelings, but as I'm watching, I'm like, this, this is not very well animated. Like, especially when you compare it to like Disney and things like that. And like, why is there like music score and rock music all the time? It's like, it's, it's oppressive in a way. And so, you know, I don't, again, I'm not trying to call out people and say you're dumb for liking Transformers, the movie, but even though that movie was nostalgic for me, it's still really flawed. It's not the greatest thing that I remember. I just, and maybe I'm blind to this one. I, like I talked about, I just think every scene is just perfectly pitched. I don't think Costner's a limited actor. I think he's good. Like when they cast him in Man of Steel, I thought that's perfect casting because they don't even have to do anything. You can just show up and go, well, that's, he's the, the, the down home, you know, a farm father kind of thing. I think he he plays a farm, farm dad in this movie. So he had like, yeah, he had plenty of kind of built-in experience. He has that kind of energy to him. Yeah, and like I said, he's best when he kind of fits what he's good for. Like Keanu Reeves fits what he's good for. Yeah. And he's he's not the greatest actor. But again, Kevin Costner is an icon and he works for this movie and he's attractive enough that he carries it and he's compelling enough and dynamic and charismatic enough that it works. But I just think that, ev- you know, like we talked about, not there's not a Heath Ledger as the Joker performance in here that kind of towers over everybody. Everybody's just working to the same goal. Everybody has their moment, either a laugh moment or a nostalgic moment or a sentimental moment. There's no, like I said, there's no real shot that calls attention to itself. It's like, oh, that's really pretty or overly pretty or loaded with special effects. The movie just is. And I think from an objective, again, objective is weird. That's a weird word to use because object. all I can really say is objectively, this is a movie. You know what I mean? Objectively, this has a screenplay. We can all agree on that. Yeah, this has actors in it. And so, uh, but I think as a movie, like especially studying screenplays and everything, I think it works. I think there may be some hiccups in there. There's, he hears the voice, if you build it, he will come and then they have the whole thing. And then if it wasn't for the voice coming back in and saying, ease his pain, then the movie would have nowhere to go. So if you're looking for flaws, I think that's kind of, it doesn't have the same like I talk about the dark Knight, what I love about the dark Knight, And obviously it has issues is the screenplay is probably the best example of, because that happened, this happened screenwriting. Yep. Every scene is the result of something that's come before it. And I watch, I study the dark Knight, and obviously people are going to agree with me. It's not an objective 
you, you could obviously find faults in my logic here. But when I watch that movie, I study the, oh, that scene happens because of this. And it keeps going and going and going. And it never has a scene where the plot stops and something else has to come in to keep it going. It just, it, and to me, the movie doesn't feel long because it's just a natural progression of scene to scene to scene. And then it just gets to the point where it climaxes and then it has to end. And Field of Dreams, like I talked, it doesn't have that same screenplay perfection. Because like I said, if it wasn't for the voice leading Ray in these new directions, the movie would have nowhere to go. It would just be like you talked about a 20, 25 minute movie where he builds the field and Shoeless Joe comes out and everybody's happy and that's it. But it's episodic in that way. So objectively, I don't think it's perfect. I don't know if any movie can be considered perfect. You can find flaws in it. But I just think as a whole, I just think that it, it works on you if you let it work on you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and it's three Oscar nominations for picture, uh, score, and uh, d- writer, director Phil Alden Robinson's yeah. screenplay, adapted screenplay. I think those all speak to what you're, what you were saying about how there's not one, there's not like a big, I think James Earl Jones is probably the closest this movie has to a flashy, air quotes, flashy or like Oscar performance where you have the big monologue yeah. and he gets all angry and emotional or whatever. It's, it's way more understated than that. And I, and I think those nominations kind of highlight, I don't know what it is about this thing, but this thing just works. Like everything clicks into place. And like I was saying, it's, it's wildly laser focused in yeah. that every little mission if you want to call it that the shoeless Joe interaction towards the beginning, the, the moonlight Graham stuff and the way everything, everything sort of builds on it on itself. It doesn't feel like there is a lot of uh, screen time that's devoted to pointless subplots or, or anything like that. It knows what it's, t- it knows the story it's telling, I think. And it, and it executes that. And it feels like old fashioned style because movies aren't paced this way anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's something that I always, find interesting going back and watching older films older it's not that old but it's older now compared to <laughs> everything costing 200 million dollars that it it takes its time telling a story it's not like loud and like you were saying with transformers the movie the animated one even that that it just like keeps trying to amp you up by distracting you with like bells and whistles and yeah. i and i think this movie has faith and confidence in its story. Is there anything specific in Field of Dreams you wanted to mention before we start winding down? Anything else that, that really hits you on a personal level that you wanted to shout out? Well, I, I think we can't, I think I mentioned him before, but we can't go without mentioning uh, James Horner's uh, score for this. I know, so yeah, that's one of two things I wanted to mention is that that first thing is the, the score. He This came out the same year as Glory, which is another great James Horner score. Yeah. And I, I don't I don't really keep up to date on the Oscars, so I don't know if uh, he was nominated for Glory. But, uh, you know, a lot of times when these uh, these same people are nominated for the same Oscar, they kind of cancel each other out because you know it kind of even somebody else votes somebody else comes up from behind and kind of takes the win from the votes or whatever but the, the like i talked about there i can't go five minutes without tearing up just when i hear that piano tune that comes in that pian- when ray starts talking the narration that gets me really emotional if you were to play that right now i would have to take i would have to sit back and kind of compose myself because that music is just so gorgeous and i think the story goes that they um you know 
they, they used a temp track for the movie before Horner came in and it was very ethereal and it was earthy and it was kind of like quiet and understated and universal pictures was like, we don't want this. And so when James Horner was hired, they thought, Oh, because he's done the music for star Trek two or all these other bombastic movies, he'll give us a big booming score that we'll love. And Horner himself got attached to that temp score. And he's like, no, I like the earthy. I like the, the magic. And there's kind of a wistful, uh, tone to the that that adds to the magic of it and i think mm-hmm. like we talked about it's not like a, a beethoven's fifth it's not like that kind of score where it's like a masterpiece and every note has to be studied every note in the movie works in a positive way towards the movie it works to help the movie get to the next place and i think that's another thing that we take for granted with movie scores is they don't always have to be bombastic they just always have to get the point of what the scene necessitates or the, the tone of the movie. There's so much in it that has so much heart and it, it speaks to to that directly. It, it, it And it paints the world as generally a good place, which the older we get, the more we're like, is it though? Um, <laughs> the, more, the more complex that, that becomes the fact that, you know, as we see on the internet all the time, like we were mentioning earlier, I love that side of it. And I think the James Horner score accents that really well. But to your point, since you watch it annually, it sounds like it's not so as much a a comfort movie for you in that it's more of a, it hits you in a more profound and meaningful way than that. I know when people talk about comfort movies, it's the movie that you just throw on when you need to feel good about yourself. This is like maybe the ultimate comfort movie in that I can go, it can keep me going for a whole year until I get to the point where I'm like, I need that little feel the dreams magic back. Yeah. Because like you talked about, 32 years ago, 32 years ago, we were not quite as hellish and cynical as we are now. I understand that this movie doesn't work for, like I talked about, it doesn't work for you. Like if you came in, Rob, and you said this movie didn't work and I thought it was too much. And like I'd be like, that's fine. Like I'm not offended because this movie wasn't maybe made for you specifically. Like this movie was made for me specifically. And I know that being a 43 year old geezer in a way is I know this is the movie that speaks to me more than any other movie that's ever been made. And yeah, it's not Citizen Kane level cinematography. It's not Captain America picks up Mjolnir kind of uh, rah, rah feeling. It's not that it's just, it makes me feel good and it gives me hope. And especially with the Oscars, it's like, yeah, we use Oscars as kind of like a, a, a weathering stick of what a movie, if it matters or not. But the fact that it's nominated, great. I don't, I don't mind that it didn't win because whether it went, won Oscars or not for Best Picture, that wouldn't change my opinion of it. Like you see people, there's an annual event where people will go to the Field of Dreams. I think the farm, it's still open. I think it was just recently resold, but people will go and they'll they'll play a game or, or Costner will meet people out there. And it's just, it, that keeps going And it because it means something to somebody out there. Yeah. I, that means something to me. That's great that it touched you. And I'm glad that it did. But at the end of the day, the movie has to speak to me to really mean something. And so that's what I mean when I say, if you don't like it, fine, you can find flaws in it. It's not going to hurt my feelings because that's how you look at it. It's not how I look at it. I look at it as something that means something and again, I don't. I feel bad if some people come in and they 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 feel differently about the movie that they pick. But I think if I feel differently about this movie, it's only because I'm going to be picking up on new things every time and new things to admire. And I, when we talk about our favorite movies, I think that's something that maybe we don't really focus on is whether it means something to you, and to hell with what anybody else thinks. Like because this movie works for me and I love it. That's all that matters. Yeah. No, it's why one of my favorite movies is 
Jerry Maguire, again, speaking mm. on movies that are about sports, but not really about sports. Yeah. I've been thinking about doing a podcast kind of exploring why that is, because I didn't see it in theaters. You know, I like Tom Cruise, but I'm not like obsessed with Tom Cruise or anything. <laughs> like, I don't even really like most of Cameron Crowe's movies. I think there's something inherent in that story. And I think it's about, I think it's a, a, mid, a man in his mid thirties, kind of like this film, feeling lost or or not like they're doing what they should be doing in the world and finding kind of reinventing themselves and and finding their in that movie he has sort of an awakening of conscience and mm-hmm. and drastically shifts his 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 work situation which then trickles into his personal life and he basically becomes the person that he wanted to be at the beginning of the movie by the end or at least a closer version of it and i think that's something in myself that's very specific to me and people come to that movie and they're like oh but that's a toxic relationship i'm like i don't know i read it differently but it's like this movie one of those that has been parodied and referenced to the point where they're like oh show me the money you had me at a low or whatever I've seen a bazillion variations of if you build it, he will come. Uh, Speaking of the Muppets, they do that in one of the Muppet movies, even for people like me who haven't seen, hadn't seen Field of Dreams until this point. How would you try and, I guess, for lack of a better term, sell them on why they should check this out, why they think that they've seen it, but they actually haven't seen it, why it's worth checking out? Because it's (laughs) not even streaming anywhere. They have to like spend either spend money or do what I did and find it at their local library or something to see it. It's not readily accessible on Netflix or anything. Yeah. I think it played on what was universals, uh, the peacock. I think they had it on there. And one of the things that the jokes with my, my wife and I was whenever it pops up on Netflix or anytime we see it like on streaming, cause it does pop up every now and then, but it's not widely always available is I'll go, huh? Field of dreams is playing. And my wife would go, who'd want to watch that crappy movie. It's we have that kind of joke going. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned what, how I would recommend this because getting to know people there, I've been getting to know a couple of people at work a little bit more personally. And the, the friend, that I have his his fiance was like well what what is his favorite movie and he's he was trying to explain Phil the dreams to her and he's like and I got halfway explaining Phil the dreams and I thought this sounds really bad this sounds really silly like literally if you think about it it's about a farmer that hears a voice that tells him to build a baseball field and then shoeless Joe comes and plays like that's silly like that's a silly idea like how do you kind of pitch that to somebody and I think instead because I, I love, I adore actually the way that you came at this movie where it's, you expected it to be one thing and it was something different. Something that I kind of, and I think you've seen this maybe on, on Twitter every now and then is something I really push is there's a difference between a want and a need. And I think it's important as an adult that it's not just about getting what we want. It's about well, I want this, but I actually needed this. And this is what fulfills me. You talk about Jerry Maguire. He wants everybody to love him, but he kind of gets rid of all that so he can refocus and have Rod Tidwell and have, you know, Renee Zellweger's character and, and, and uh, you know, Jonathan Lipnicki. And that's his world now. And because he's a good person and because he got what he needed instead of what he wanted, all of a sudden everybody else can feel that. And they're inspired by him at the end of Jerry Maguire. And he starts yeah. building his fan base back up because he was able to refocus. I think if I was to recommend it, I would say like, obviously, like you said, it's part of the lexicon. So that, Oh, that's the build the baseball field in his uh, cornfield movie. And it's like, yeah, but if you're looking for a movie that's about redemption and you're looking for a movie about finding that goodness in a cynical world, if you're looking for 
finding what you need as opposed to what you want and being fulfilled, this is the movie that will do you some good. It might not be your favorite movie. It might not work for you completely. But if that's a message that you're longing for, this is a movie that hits all of those notes. And I, I bet at least on some little, little, little level, it'll hit those notes for you. That's how I would recommend it, I think. Yeah, there's a certain nourishing quality to this movie that I can 100% see even watching it now for the first time. And like I said, at late at night when I to get ready for this episode and stuff, that's something that I, I could 100% read into the movie. And, and I can see why it means so much to, to so many people, including you. So I appreciate you coming on the show and, and coming to talk about this movie that, that you're so passionate about. That's exactly... Mm exactly the kind of energy and perspective we want we want to you know foster on this show but Darren can you tell people where they can find you on social media yeah if you want to reach me on twitter or follow me on twitter or just be annoyed by anything that i tweet you can find me at dw lundberg again the actual name of my account is nostalgia cast named after our podcast we have if you go to our libsyn website again like i mentioned johnny and i have i think 42 episodes now. We had a string of guests that we just did uh, that we brought on and uh, talked about, again, taking old movies that meant something to you as as kids and then rewatching it with adult eyes, but not being a dick about it, I guess you could say. Like, we don't want to be mean-spirited. We want to have good quality conversations. And even a movie, like when we first started, like right now we're on kind of a hiatus because Johnny moved. So I call it kind of the, uh, we've ended our second season, I guess you could say, uh, because Johnny just made a move cross country. But when we first started, like there, we had fans or family members that would request movies. And one of the movies that we kept getting requests for was Labyrinth. And like Johnny and I would look at each other every time and go, I don't want to do Labyrinth because there's nothing positive that I personally can say about it. Like, and I, we didn't want to be that kind of podcast where we're just jumping on it and, and kind of ripping out its jugular. So we brought Johnny's wife on who has more of a connection to Labyrinth and we're able to talk about her love for it. And it helped us appreciate a little bit more. I don't know if we liked the movie a, a lot more than we did before, but again, the whole point of nostalgia cast is to take these movies that meant something to somebody and approach it with fresh eyes, but also be honest about it and approachable and not argumentative and confrontational because that never leads anywhere positive. It's always fun to, to see other people's perspectives and be like, wow, yeah. I I did an episode not that long ago earlier this year on Howard the Duck because <laughs> someone who'd been on the show before was like, oh, you should do Howard the Duck. And I was like, sure, that'd be interesting. I saw that yeah. as a kid a lot for some reason. Uh, <laughs> when I shouldn't have been watching it. And it's also kind of all over the place. But yeah, I, I had a new appreciation for like, yeah, it's true. This is a weird movie. What a what an odd thing that this exists and all these big swings that it goes for, some of which, a lot of which that don't work. But it's just, it's interesting to kind of dissect it as an adult looking back and be like, what were they thinking with that exactly? Not in a mean-spirited way, just in a like, what was the vision and how was it, executed in this in this manner how did how is this what we ended up with because there are even in the worst movies for the most part i'm gonna say i'm gonna preface that with this there's is something there's an interesting conversation to be had there's there's something you can take away from it and so i really appreciate the fact that your show also tries to focus on the positive and not just be another tearing down all these movies because that you know, it's someone, every movie is someone's favorite movie. And I think it's, it's, you're not doing anybody any favors by just putting out an hour and change of content, just 
telling everybody why it sucks. I, I don't, there's no, there's no use. There's no point to that in my opinion, but yeah. But yeah. Darren, this was so much fun. I, I will definitely love to have you back talk oh. about another movie on here, or if, if there's a certain franchise you're really into, we can have you on, on the other show franchise detours at some point, let me know and we'll, we'll be in touch and, and we'll definitely get you back. This was fun. Yeah. Rob, I absolutely adore you listening to you on binge movies. I think that's where we finally started like really connect. I'm not, I'm not trying to be stalkers so. and say we're, we're best friends or anything, but I think that's <laughs> where we really started to have conversations and things like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, thank you for letting me come on and talk about this movie. I know it does mean a lot to me. I hope that came across to people maybe a little bit too much, but like, I, I always love talking about this movie besides my family who've heard me talk about it to death. And so I, I just really appreciate you bringing me on to be able to talk about this. Thank you for having this be the focal point of your show at this point. I really appreciate that. And I, and I would love to come back on and have a chat with you. Awesome. Absolutely. Thanks, Darren. You're welcome. Big thanks to Darren Lundberg from Nostalgia Cast for coming on to discuss Field of Dreams. Now I want to know, did you cry the first time you watched Field of Dreams? And if you haven't, why? If you haven't seen the movie, why haven't you finally checked it out? Why? Maybe if you're not like if you're like me, you needed a podcast to finally make the time to prioritize Field of Dreams. So, why haven't you watched it? Or or what was your first time uh, experience watching Field of Dreams? Let me know on Twitter at Crooked Table. You can also find me on Instagram with the same handle. And on email at robert at crookedtable.com. For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Catch you next time. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.